everyone. Welcome back to another episode of FinTech Walkabout. Again, I'm Will. I'm joined today by Bob Wigley of UK Finance. Obviously, we're doing our deep dives into interesting people and open banking as a concept. So, Bob, it would be great to just get a quick intro from yourself. You've got a pretty extensive background in finance, so I'd love to hear about it. So I started life uh, as a chartered accountant, went into banking. I was in banking for 25 years, latterly as the European chairman of Merrill Lynch. So uh, 9,000 people, 23 countries, about half a trillion dollars of gross asset. Prime Minister put me onto the court of the Bank of England in the lead up to the financial crisis. So 2007, I was there till the end of the financial crisis. I left banking after the crisis. I've been investing in young entrepreneurs, as you know, in tech businesses for the last better part of 10 years. And then four years ago, I was asked to become chairman of UK Finance, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more, but essentially represents the financial services industry in the UK. Yeah, board member at Department of International Trade. So well. I do some work with government. So that's that's because of UK Finance. I okay. help the Department of International Trade think about when we're negotiating free trade agreements uh, with countries around the world, what will be good to have in that free trade agreement from a financial services perspective, of which obviously data, being able to move data around the world freely is one big one big part of it. Massive. Deal. I also sit on the Economic Crime Strategic Board with the Chancellor and the Home Secretary, so that's more around fighting economic crime. Okay. Super interesting. It's a pretty broad scope, right? But it'd be good to hear more about your you know, your transition from Merrill Lynch. Kind of, you were around when that merger happened around the Bank of America, yes. and then into the Bank of England. Kind of a pretty tumultuous time in yes. the world. Could you talk us through just like what that felt like, what was going on day to day? Sure. So, well, I always say when people say, did you have a good time in the banking industry? <laughs> I said I had 25 good years and the 26 was not quite as good. And that was 2008. So I had been looking very carefully at what was going on in the markets during 2007. Became increasingly concerned that we were heading into a very challenging period. And I talked to the Bank of England about that. I talked to the government about it. And that was what led to them asking me to join the court of the Bank of England. Okay. Just to try and help them think through what was going to happen next and how they could deal with the situation. Now, one of the problems in talking about this is that when you become a court member of the Bank of England, you sign a secrecy obligation. Sure. So can't go into any detail. But let's just say we What's sat shot? there for, for three years looking at you know, in minutiae developments in the markets every day, working out how regulation could be developed to uh, deal with the situation. So short-term measures in terms of shoring up the markets and creating stability where there was instability, restoring confidence and trust in the banking system, and then ultimately making sure that in the longer term, banks had adequate capital and liquidity to better withstand the kinds of shocks that happened during that crisis. Mm. I think confidence and trust is, is probably something we'll touch on as a theme throughout this. I know you're also the global commissioner or the commissioner for Global Britain. What does that entail? What does that mean? So there are several of us. It's a, a new commission that was set up about six months ago. The Prime Minister likes to use the expression Global Britain. It's become a sort of brand for the country, yeah. um, but no one knows what it means. <laughs> and that's because it doesn't mean much at the moment. So okay. the commission is trying to put some definition around what it means. In other words, what is Britain good at? What could it be good at? Yeah. We have some world-class leading industries. The financial services industry is one of them. That's why I'm there. Music would be another. So the question is, what are we good at and how can we better promote those industries globally? And what else could we lead in if we put our minds to it? I'll give you an example. Little known fact, we actually have the biggest space tech incubator and accelerator in this country. We have the best space tech faculty of any university in the world. We have Harwell Laboratories. We have a Glasgow Museum for space tech. We actually have what I call spaceport GP, GB, that no one even realises exists. So one of the things I'm going to be doing is putting a proposal together for how we kind of capitalise on these sorts of opportunities, mm. these, these hidden gems, which, which could be huge in the future. Space tech's going to be massive. Yeah. 
Um, I've actually just joined um, a space tech fund myself as a partner because I'm so excited about it. Cool. What's your bit off topic? But because we're in the realm of, of switching people to broadband, what's your take on Starlink? Do you know much about it? No. Okay. So it's Elon Musk's. Um, oh, sorry. The thing that's been broadband. helping the Ukrainians uh, yeah, with yeah. satellites. So, okay. So one of the four kind of key pillars of space tech is, is low cost satellites. Mm. The cost of satellites, launching them and operating them and manufacturing them has dropped dramatically. Yeah, you know. yeah. So they used to be big and very expensive. Now they're small and very cheap. And with that, obviously, the number of user cases opens up dramatically. That's one of the reasons that space tech is now at an inflection point yeah. and is such an exciting opportunity. <clears throat> you, you asked me a little bit about the Global Britain Commission. I just want to come back to that because sure. what we've done is issue one report which looks at some benchmarking for, for Great Britain against the rest of the world. Mm. If we had R&D at the level of the best country in the world, what would that mean in terms of additional expenditure and jobs? If we had venture capital investment in technology companies at the level of the best in the world, what would that mean in terms of additional investment and jobs and growth? So that reports out. It's what I call the size of the prize. We have two more reports coming up, which will have very specific proposals for government about things they could do to really move the needle for global Britain. Mm. One of those, without giving away too much, is going to be to finally solve the equity gap. Now, in my working lifetime, we've constantly talked about the lack of capital for growth businesses. We're yeah. quite good at friends and family. We get companies so far, then unfortunately we don't seem to have the next stage called the valley of death. They end up going oh, off yeah. to the States. Familiar. I don't think it will be that difficult to solve that problem. We have enormous asset management and pension funds in this country that are currently, not by design, or almost by accident, prevented from investing in this asset class. So one of the things we're going to, be, going to be looking at in the report is ways of unlocking that money to get more money into growth capital, yeah. which is where you and I spend our, our days. Yeah, I mean, every day of my life, right? So it's, and especially in the world of data and open banking, finance, as you said, a, a prominent industry in the UK. If we can just kind of bridge that gap, I think, mm. you know, we're competing with the US is, is five times the size of us in terms of population, but there's no exactly. reason why we can't be putting out the same caliber of businesses. We're slowly moving in the right direction. Well, the level of innovation in this country, uh, I don't think, has ever been higher. And it's something that some people don't know. But, I mean, yeah. it's incredible. You know, I meet, as you know, to, to put my book together, I, I met a young entrepreneur every day. You wander around the UK, you come down here to Shoreditch. I mean, the amount of innovation is incredible. The question is how you nurture that, how you create an ecosystem of mentors, money, and smart people around young entrepreneurs to help them realize their, their dreams, and ambitions, and build businesses for Britain in the process. That's what I'm passionate about. That's great. You're also obviously very passionate about finance specifically. And maybe let's bring the topic back. I could say I'm passionate about finance. That that sounds a bit weird. Active to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) I'm busy in finance. So what does it mean to be the chairman of UK finance? Okay, so this was formed, this organization was formed four years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's the merger of six previous trade associations, the biggest of which was the British Bankers Association. And the chairman of the biggest banks in the UK said, look, we're going into Brexit. We don't feel we have a body that properly represents our industry and effectively represents our industry. So let's bring together everything we have, create one super trade body, and they asked me to be uh, the founder chairman of it. So it now exists. We have 302 members that go from HSBC down to Monzo and Starling with everything in between. It has in it the payment systems, so not just the banks, building societies, all the mutuals, Mm. credit card companies, and the asset-backed lenders. And we have a staff of 180 people. We have a budget of about 40 million a year. Okay. And we do three things, the third of which is probably the most important. So we formulate policy for the industry. Yeah. 
if the government is thinking about a new regulation or the EU is about to bring in a law, we will go off and explain to the government regulators exactly what that means for the industry, positive and negative. We obviously advocate to try and shape the way that thinking to be in the interest of the consumers of our industry and, and of the businesses of our industry. And then the third thing, which is the really important thing, is what I call collaboration. Now, financial services industry faces incredible headwinds. You have increased capital charges since the uh, GFC. You have increased regulatory burdens that are now enormous and amongst the heaviest in the world. We still have quite a hostile media and consumer environment, particularly mm. in the personal finance. We have legacy IT systems against the challenges of fintechs and challenger banks. We had Brexit. We've had COVID. We've now got massively increased cyber risk. Fraud is expanding exponentially. Yeah. So against those headwinds, how does this industry forge a future? And that's what UK finance is focused on, is, is how we can get people to work together to create a really exciting industry that remains world-class and keeps London and the other great financial centres of the UK at the forefront globally of global financial centres. So it'd be good to pick apart some of those topics a little bit. There's obviously a, a, mm. a, another pretty broad scope of things. You've talked to me a little bit about your passion for identity and verification, things around that we've touched on, risk and trust and fraud. So INDMV, can you talk to me a little bit about that? So EIDMV, not yeah. exactly a, it doesn't trip off the tongue, does it? No, uh, generally, generally not in the right order. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. um, so what does it mean? It means that how you identify yourself, which is a subject for the internet in general. I mean, yeah. when the internet was set up, people were allowed to be anonymous. I personally think that's nuts, and I hope in the end that we'll stop it. It's a subject that's being debated at the moment as the online safety bill goes through Parliament. Yeah. But in the financial services industry, where regulators require us to identify our customers, we have no choice. We have to do that. Yeah. The question is, how, how is it most convenient for customers to identify themselves? And wouldn't it make sense for you to have a digital passport that once you've done it, once. automatically yeah. updated itself? Yeah from public records, so your passport office, your yeah. driver's license, other data that the DWP might keep on you, for example, in the context of your national insurance numbers, rather than you constantly having to do what you do at the moment, which is provide you know, two utility bills of passport to endless people who ask for them because yeah. they have to. And then it's becoming increasingly complex because now they're asking you to have them certified by a solicitor. So, and it has to be within the last three months, and the utility bill has to be posted to you. It can't be printed from your, your online account. I mean, Whoever uses it, mail. It, it's, it's yeah. becoming untenable, the way we're doing it. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't even achieve much of the utility it's intended to achieve, in the sense it doesn't actually stop people um, creating false identities mm. in some cases, and it actually doesn't stop fraud because we see the fraud statistics continuing to rise. So, so my, my, and I am passionate about this because I think it's really yeah. important, I've actually just written to a group of CEOs in the financial services industry saying, look, we've got to have EIDNV, electronic identity and verification. It's coming. The only question is, is the financial services industry going to design it or are the big techs going to design it? Mm. Big techs in, in the widest sense. So it could be, it could be Facebook, it, it could be Google, or it could be Microsoft or Accenture, for example. And everyone has a project. Had Libra happened, right, and been a success, this would have become much more apparent a problem much more rapidly. Yeah. And the other thing that's driving it is crypto, because in the crypto world, we don't have the levels of know your client and anti-money laundering processes that we have in the traditional banking industry. And that has now got to a scale where the regulators can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. So EIDV, EIDNV is coming. The only question is who The only question is who invents it. Now, yeah. my argument is that if the financial service industry invents it, and we are the logical place for it, we will do it with the interests of consumers in mind 
and you know to protect if you like the future for a buoyant world-class financial services industry in the uk if the big tech companies do it they'll have different motivations which obviously will revolve around their business models and their P&Ls. would you say that and, and probably i mean one could argue about the balance in the big tech companies subject in my book obviously between whether they're acting in the interests of their consumers or, or their P&Ls. and so my my statement to the financial services industry is we need to get on and do do this fast i would argue though that consumers probably have the same questions around their banks as they do around their relationship with Google or Facebook, right? Like, well, happily, oh. they don't, because if you look at the trust statistics, you'll find that when it comes to managing your data, people have a very high degree of trust in their banks and a very low degree of trust in their, in their big tech platforms. So we're starting to get into the, the world of open banking, open mm. data. We're slowly working our way into it, but before we get there, we're talking about fighting risk, yes, fraud, fraud, cybercrime. Yeah. Talked a little bit about the big techs. You tell me about the government communications headquarters before we came down and started. Talking. So yeah, so so that's really in the context of cyber risk specifically. Yeah. So I would say that going back three or four years, our biggest banks were pretty well protected. Our middle tier and smaller banks were probably less well protected, and sure. that's just a function of how much resource every bank has. Yeah. So as an industry, we came together and we said, look, in a, in a sense, the system is only as good as its weakest link, and therefore we need to make we need to bring up the mid-tier and smaller banks to the level of protection that the biggest banks have. And so we formed something called the, it's a bit of a mouthful, it's a bit like EIDNV, it's the FSCCC, the Financial Services Sector Cyber Collaboration Unit. Okay, I will not be trying to repeat don't, that. Don't try. Yeah. And what that basically does is it acts like a UN for banks on cyber risk. So if you attack a small bank, the big banks regard themselves as attacked at the same time. Mm. We have an immediate mechanism to get the chief information security officers for those banks virtually into a system. We immediately identify who's been attacked, how they've been attacked. We work out how quickly to remediate the situation. We make sure it doesn't spread. And this is all about you know, damage limitation, mm. restoring the system as quickly as possible, maintaining customer trust in the industry. And I can tell you it works very effectively, touch wood. There's a lot going on at the moment, obviously, with what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. We've seen quite a tick up in activity. But anyway, through COVID, we saw a big rise in cyber risk. This is now a big industry, a big global, quite a lot of it sadly comes from, from three large countries, one of which is in Northern Europe, one of which is in the Far East, and one, one of which is between the other two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we see a lot of activity from those countries where there are very well organized industries targeting our companies, trying to steal our money, and uh, we, we need to get better and better. So at GCHQ, through the NCSC, regard the financial services industry, I think, as the model here. We now need to spread the the best practice that we've developed across other industries. Okay. That's definitely been uh, probably on a, on a slightly lesser scope or scale for, for our business is, is being able to come in and, and give confidence to larger financial institutions to say whatever data AppTap is taking in as a you know, smaller fintech, we need to be on that. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure if you're partnering with big banks, what we call tier one banks, then yeah. You will have had to go through procurement questionnaires right. and they'll ask you if you've got an ISO 27001 accreditation. They'll be all over your cyber procedures. Sure. Yeah. yeah so. Good. But on the, on the topic of regulation, let's, let's now move into banking. UK Finance released a report, I think it was November of last year, centred around the challenges that open banking has faced and, and what we can do. So I think there are things in there around kind of tech enablement, multilateral frameworks and, and you know, bipartisan or biparty kind of agreements. What do you see as, or what's what's been the approach for UK finance when looking at open banking as as a concept and trying to apply that to industry? I mean, it's a very difficult question to answer straight off the bat because 
the way a lot of our members have looked at it is that we've invested as an industry about £2 billion in a system that not many people use. Mm. Right? That's the history, if you like. We just, I think we just hit like 5 million consumers using open banking or something. Yes. Now, after five years. Yes, exactly. Like, now, if you'd said to the, to the banking industry five years ago, you've got £2 billion to spend to make lives better for your consumers, how would you spend it? Mm. We certainly, I don't think, would have spent it on open banking. However, here we are. Yeah. I mean, there are those that also believe that it was not really the right solution to a problem that the CMA identified, but that's all history. It's relevant. We have it. The question is now how we make the most of it. Sure. The good news is, if you roll forward, we are starting to see recently quite big upticks in usage, and that's. but it's a new type of usage. It's not really... The original concept was, could, could a small fintech company get access to my personal data yeah. to better offer me more appropriate products to my needs? And of course, some of that is going on. Yeah. Actually, I mean, one of the interesting things is you're going to find the biggest banks are using it to look at the bank accounts of customers of other banks and offer them a product. So that's going to be an interesting development as that comes to fruition. But I think the really interesting and most recent development is some of the biggest utilities starting to use it. So one of the biggest in the country, HMRC, has opened up their system to open banking for tax payments. Now, yeah. that, that obviously suddenly means that a system that was being very underutilised relative to the base capital expenditure that uh, created it could now have really meaningful use. So that's one, one way in which we're going to see more usage and, and, and better usage of a pretty expensive system. Yeah, it's definitely made my life easier in reporting. I'm all for open banking, for what it's worth, I think, although... I'm not against it. Yeah, okay. But, it, it's, but it's not about being, as a philosophy, it's fine, but, but you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have justified spending £2 billion on the basis of today's usage. Mm. But it's, I guess it's a question of, is that the bank's choice? Well, it wasn't, well, the, bank's, wasn't, it wasn't the bank's wasn't, choice, no. So, but it's the, so it's the consumer then. So, so consumer. I think that the next beef that the industry would, would have had with open banking was how it was governed. Mm. And you probably saw last week a report uh, that came out from the CMA itself about its own views about how it managed the, the, the system through the OBIE. Yeah. Back on acronyms. As you know, there are changes being made. So now there's going to be a new body which will have the FCA and the payment systems regulator in it, mm. which makes perfect sense since they are the people who are essentially overseeing and supervising the banking and payments industry, still with involvement from the CMA. But I think that's a much more, much more practical construct that will enable, I think, open banking to move forward in a way which is, will have more use and more utility to consumers. But we're looking at a system that should, in theory, reduce risk and fraud and cybercrime, right? This is, we've, we've now transitioned from... Well, it wasn't, desi- wasn't to... designed with that in mind. It was designed with the clues in the name, right? It, with, with opening up data about people's banking activity to to non-banks, mm. that was the original... But that's, consu- that's about ownership, right? Mm. And then it, previously or historically, it was I as a consumer, I know these transactions are mine, but I was, I was never able to take share ownership them with, and share them with share other people. Yeah. Out, right? so, yeah, that, and that's a good thing. We have no, I mean, no, no one has any problem with that. It's a good thing. Yeah. So made a couple of maybe comments alluding to how you think it's going, but in your mind, how do you think open banking is going? Is it, is it where it should be today? Has it had the kind of consumer impact it was touted? Well, it hasn't, but I think it's about to. So I think, and that's for a whole host of reasons. I think, firstly, you know, the fintech industry has grown up dramatically over the last four or five years. Yeah. It was pretty nascent when open banking was started. It's now a big industry and growing dramatically. And more and more clever people, entrepreneurs, are thinking of ways of using 
data through open banking. The second thing I think is that the whole concept of open banking has sort of progressed to open data and open finance, yeah. right? And so the question is not not the sort of mechanical one of how can I get into someone's bank account and use information about their direct debits to work out how I can sell them a product that's relevant to their needs. That's yeah. kind of a pretty niche thing in a way. It's more about the wider set of consumer data. And so we as an industry are slightly turning the argument on its head and saying, well, we've been re- we have these, bus- these large businesses that between them have significant market shares. Mm-hmm. And so the competition, the market authorities said to us, you must, you must open up your data to others. Well, I would argue that companies like Google and Facebook have similar monopsonies, as I call them, yeah. in their industries, but we don't have access to theirs. Why is that? So the EU has started putting forward that argument and has said to the big tech platforms, we are going to force you to make some of that data available to mid-sized and smaller companies. It's a lot more black and white in, in financial services, though, isn't it? Uh, I don't think so. No, I just no, I actually don't think it is black and white. It's, it's probably easier mechanically, but the range of data that could be useful to mid-sized and smaller companies that the big techs have by virtue of their massive market positions, and I include companies like Amazon and eBay sure. here, obviously, the, the opportunity is much greater. But do you think their value lies more in the algorithms and the insights that they've built out and generated rather than the actual, you know, if I look at a transactional data set, I can probably get a pretty good idea of, kind of who a customer is on some level. But in terms of, like, if I took my Google search history, I'm not sure if I was just looking at it side by side with my transactional data that I could get that same idea without... No, the... but if you, if, you had your, if you had your Google data, your maybe your Instagram viewing history... Your Amazon purchase history, yeah, that could be dangerous. Your, your Amazon purchase history and your open banking data, think what you could do. Oh, yeah. So, so our argument simply is, why, why just us? Why should we not have access to this data? Which, if it, if, it, if it comes from platforms that have very major market positions, and that was the argument why we had to release our data, why should we not turn that around? Sure. So, I mean, that's a, I see the parallels. How do we get there step by step? If you had to choose one industry... Would it be big tech or, or, or are there yes, intermediaries? Yes, definitely. So, so, and it's sort of, it's, it's happening, right? So yeah. in the UK, the government has set up a, a unit within the Competitions Market Authority called the Digital Markets Unit, which is being created to say, look, they're already here. They're huge. They have these very substantial market shares. Yeah. How do you now regulate something that has that market position? We're not, you know, no one's proposing that we don't have Facebook or Instagram yeah. or any of these platforms, they serve great utility. They do many good things for their customers. The question is, how do, you, you know, what, how do you turn the argument around and use the data they collect, which currently is proprietary to them, if you like, for other purposes in the interest of consumers? And that's what the DMU is going to consider. Okay. So what lessons should we take from what we've seen in open banking? And you know, what lessons should we apply? Because I think we've, we kind of have these discussions with utilities and telecoms providers saying, let's, let's offer you some value up front as opposed to the mandates that happened, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's for me to advise the CMA on what it should do about regulating Advi- advise, big tech. Advise me. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> what I would say is this: I mean, our argument is that we should have a level playing field. Sure. It, you know, we have been regulated against, if you like, in this context, and been mm-hmm. made to open up. I would argue that their their very substantial market positions are in some cases actually stronger than the positions of large banks. Sure. So why, why should we not um, be able to access their data and why should consumers and businesses not be able to access their data with, the, with adequate safeguards? And we make the same argument in relation to 
this is relevant to, I know, I know you're going to come back to open banking because I can see you have a passion for it, to paint the payment system, right? Where, where probably within fintech, this is one of the biggest, the biggest growth areas. Yeah. Some very interesting businesses, making life easier for consumers, reducing transaction costs, speed of uh, transmission, convenience, efficiency. The question is, is how you regulate those companies. And some of them, because of the way they're set up, don't fall within the full sort of remit of banking regulation. Yeah. And what we say as the industry is if it's the same activity, it carries the same risk, it should be subject to the same regulation. Yeah. And that is a mantra that we've been pushing for a couple of years. And you'll see that regulators are now responding by bringing more and more of the payments providers into more complex uh, regulation. And as crypto develops and becomes mainstream, you're going to find that yeah. that is going to ramp up very substantially. We're seeing in the States, you've just seen the presidential order where Biden told the regulators to get in a room and come back to him with, within 90 days with proposals around should we have a CBDC? If, what should, you know, if so, what should it do? Mm. How should we regulate crypto? Should we have EID and V? All these things are very much on the agenda. But as long as we, we work on the principle of reciprocity, so if we've had to open up, why shouldn't they? Mm. And we have same activity, same risk, same regulation, that, those are good principles. Level the playing field. Yeah. Then. Cool. Well, we are coming up on our time. So just interested to get some of your thoughts. What, what's on the horizon for you? What, what comes next for UK me Finance? Me personally or for UK Finance? Uh, a bit of both. Well, me personally, so I'm just about to release the paperback version of the book that I wrote last year, which, as Great. you know, is about the effects of technology on Generation Z, for which I did this 200 times. So I interviewed yep. 200 <laughs> youngsters about their attitudes to technology. So that's coming out in July, so I'll be going Glad you're looking at pointing at me and saying youngster. So yeah, that's good, that's good. It. You just about fit within that definition. Yeah. Uh, and so I'll be going on a, a sort of new PR tour for that. I was appointed a professor at university in Australia last year. I haven't been able to go there yet because yeah. of COVID, <laughs> so I'm planning on going down this summer and doing some, some lecturing. Actually, one of the things is to develop a, a course for company directors who don't understand cyber risk. Mm. So many people sit on boards. They're not, they're not IT specialists. They know that cyber is a problem. They don't really understand what it is or how to protect the company against it. And most importantly, as a director, they don't know how to fulfill their fiduciary duties in the, you know, to, mm. to provide effective governance around cyber risk. So I'm going to create an online exec ed course with some of the leaders in the industry to help directors understand what they should be doing to, to protect against cyber risk. Nice. Lots of, lots of open data movements going on in Australia For sure. at the moment. Which is cool. And what about UK finance, just to, to top us off? So a uh, big push on fraud this year. So okay. this is, uh, whilst uh, it's growing, it's still growing too fast. It's become a big industry, as I said earlier on, and we spend hundreds of millions of pounds a year trying to stop frauds. Too much is still happening. So what can we do? And one of the things we could do, for example, is we have a fast payment system in the UK, which is arguably too fast, right? And, and unfortunately, a serious organized crime has worked that out. Mm. So they're using the fast payment system to quickly transfer money and then transfer it on. So we're looking at ways of slowing it down, actually, temporarily. Yeah. If we believe that, I put a proposal to the security minister literally a few weeks ago, which basically says if, if a bank has reasonable grounds to believe someone's committing a fraud, we should be able to just delay that payment okay. by, say, 24 hours to enable us to do some work. And that would, Identify, what yeah. we call, put grit in the system as regards fraud. Interesting. Cool. Well, Bob, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Will, great to see you. Thank you for um, having me. Is there anywhere, uh, if people want to learn more, uh, anywhere you would plug? The in? book website is www.robertwigley. Otherwise, LinkedIn is good. Uh, and I'm there. I'm Robert Wigley, not Bob Wigley, but you'll find me pretty quickly, probably. Perfect. Cool. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in again, and we'll see you soon. Perfect.